in C.S. Lewis's uh, Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe, you have these four young people, Peter, Susan, Edmund, and Lucy. And they tumble through a wardrobe and they land into a place called Narnia. And in this place, you have an evil, wicked witch who has cast a spell, a curse on the land where it's always winter and never Christmas. And you have Edmund... Of the four is the most sulky, the most quarrelsome, the most combative. And it opens him up to this wicked witch. In fact, he is captivated by her and eventually is held captive by her. And this angers his three siblings. They are angry at Edmund and yet they still love him. And then they meet the hero, the lion Aslan. And Lucy asked Aslan, please, Aslan, can anything be done to save Edmund? And Aslan responds, all shall be done. But it may be harder than you think. And in the story, Aslan must forfeit his life in order to redeem, in order to secure Edmund's release. Indeed, it was much harder than Lucy could ever Imagine more than she could ever think. Likewise, Jesus has come to secure our release. He has come to redeem us, but it's much harder than any of us could ever think or imagine. That's the point of this narrative. Last week, we saw his agony in the garden. That's a part of his humiliation. It's a part of what he is undergoing in order that we may be redeemed. That's why that passage is important to us. It should should stir our affections to love the Lord Jesus more. This week we see a betrayal. A betrayal in the garden and an arrest. Now last week we saw Jesus commend the disciples two times, which tells us it's important. He says, pray lest you enter into temptation. And in those commands, we also see Jesus exemplifying what this means because Jesus is being tempted. As our representative, as the true man for us, he is being tempted to forgo the cross. He says, Father, if you're willing, take this cup, which represents the cross, take it from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. You have Jesus praying so that he does not give in to temptation. And yet the disciples, the knuckleheads, those who represent us are asleep rather than praying. And now we're going to see some of the results of that prayerlessness. And we see it today. Now, Luke shows us all the way back in chapter 4 that when Jesus comes on the scene, the devil takes him into the wilderness or the spirit leads him into the wilderness and the devil tempts him three times. And it says, after Jesus obeyed uh, the Father in those temptations, in verse 13 of chapter 4, when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. What does that tell you? That tells you that he's coming back. And now we're in that opportune time. In fact, if you look in chapter 22, Thursday evening, all of this is transpired in one night. Chapter 22, verse 3, it said, Satan entered into Judas called Iscariot, who was one of the twelve. Now is that opportune time. And as we read just earlier, now is 
that hour. Jesus says, your hour, the power of darkness. This is the darkest section of the Bible. You don't get any darker than what we have in this passage. Everything is dark about this passage except for Jesus' ministry in this passage. And the first thing we see in this passage is a dark betrayal. Look with me in verses 47 and 48. It says, while he was still speaking. And so here he is. He is commending the disciples to prayer, lest they enter into temptation. And even as he's speaking, there came a crowd, and the man called Judas. Now, earlier, Jesus had uh, had the Lord's Supper with his disciples. He had transformed the Passover meal into the Lord's Supper right before their very eyes. And it says in other texts that Judas kind of uh, went away at that point. He just kind of, you know, left the group. He went to get uh, these powers that be. And it says uh, he was leading them and he drew near to Jesus to kiss him. But Jesus said to him, Judas, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? Now, Jesus was very popular. He was still very popular with the masses at this time. And so by arresting him in this garden, okay, kind of a secluded garden, and it's dark, it's nighttime, there were no street lamps or lights, by arresting him here, uh, away from the crowds, the authorities would be able to avoid any kind of pushback, any kind of uproar. And just as a side, due to the scandalous intrigue of this account, and it is utterly scandalous, what happens here, this kind of demonstrates the historical reliability of this passage. Because there is no Christian in the first century who would have made this up. There's no way a Christian who's trying to support the veracity of Jesus Christ as the prophet, priest, and king, son of God, son of man, uh, the son of David, would have made up a story about one of his intimate twelve betraying him. So that speaks to the historical trustworthiness of this account. But notice... Judas comes and to kiss him. And uh, when you think about a kiss, I, I read this definition this week. A kiss is the contraction of the mouth due to the enlargement of the heart. But that's not the case with every kiss, okay? Uh, sometimes kisses are motivated by the enlargement of the heart. Sometimes they're motivated by the shrinking of the heart. Uh, here, this kiss is a deceptive kiss. In fact, this is where we get that famous phrase, the kiss of death. It comes from this account with Judas. Now, I want you to consider the three-year investment that Jesus has made with this man. If you've ever invested in someone, uh, you've discipled someone, you've, you've just given your life away to someone, and they kind of turn their back on you, there's nothing more painful. Outside of tragedy in your family, there's nothing more painful than that, Okay? You've probably experienced it. We've experienced it here at Fisherville. Uh, it is a very painful thing. And this man has invested, Jesus has invested three years of his life into Judas. Judas has had a front row seat. He had a front row seat when Jesus preached the Sermon on the Mount. He heard Jesus preaching about the gospel of the kingdom of God. A gospel which centers on his person, his work, and his worth. A gospel that demonstrates our need for a Savior. 
A gospel that demonstrates that we need to repent of our sins and believe in His finished work for salvation, to spend eternity with God. Judas had a front row seat to those sermons. He has seen the miracles. He has seen Jesus rebuke the wind. How do you rebuke wind? You don't unless you're the king, okay? He has seen Jesus cast out demons. Um, On one island, he saw Jesus cast out 2,000 demons out of a man. And here this man now sat clothed and in his right mind. He has seen Jesus raise at least three people from the dead. Lazarus, Jairus' daughter, and the widow at Nain's son. He has seen countless acts of compassion. Jesus has invested in this man. And then there are the warnings. Jesus has constantly warned the disciples of turning away. Okay? For instance, in Luke 11, when Jesus was asked by the disciples, show us how to pray. He says, pray this, lead us not into temptation. And then in chapter 12, we see Jesus warning the disciples, whoever acknowledges me before men, I will acknowledge before my Father in heaven. But those who deny me before men... I will deny before my Father in heaven. Judas heard that. And then in chapter 20, Jesus gives this parable of the landowner. This landowner had this land and he he rents out this land to these tenants. And then he sends his servants who represent the prophets. He sends these servants to these uh, tenants to receive fruit from the land. And instead of receiving fruit from the land, what are those tenants do they beat his servants then he sends his son he sends his son and what do those tenants do they kill his son and then jesus said these words the stone that the builders have rejected has become the chief cornerstone and whoever falls on this stone will be crushed judas heard those words and then earlier that night just Minutes, or maybe hours earlier that night, Jesus said, Woe to the one who betrays the Son of Man. Judas had heard these words. He had seen his acts of compassion. In fact, earlier, Jesus had washed his feet. Jesus had done more for Judas than any of us combined have ever done for anyone else. Judas had experienced Christ's love. And even these words in verse 48 were spoken out of love. We, it's hard to pick up the pathos here. You, when, you, when you have... I wish there was a, some kind of font that demonstrates the emotion of someone's words. Judas, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? And yes... He would. Judas was filled with unrepentant greed. And it had opened himself up to the devil. Judas is possessed by the devil. Judas was not a believer. And he carries out this betrayal of Jesus. And Judas teaches us a crucial lesson here. Judas teaches us that it is possible to be strongly identified with Jesus and not know Him in a saving way. Churches are filled with people like that. 
Seminaries are filled with people like that. Bible colleges are filled with people like that. I've been at a Bible college for eight years. I was in seminary nine years. I have seen countless people who love to talk theology, whose hearts are not warmed by the gospel, whose lives are not marked by repentance. And churches are filled with those kinds of people as well. There was no one closer to Jesus than Judas. He was one of the intimate twelve. And Judas did not know Jesus. He was not repentant. And we can be so deceived by our church attendance. Church attendance means nothing if your life is not marked by repentance and faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ. This is a a warning to us. It's a warning to us. But there's also another message here for us as well. How do you respond when you're betrayed? How do you respond when you're betrayed? If you haven't been betrayed, it's likely you will be betrayed. We've seen the dark betrayal. We're going to see the dark revenge here. And unfortunately, if you're like me, you resonate with this revenge. Look with me in verse 49. It says, And when those who were around him saw what would follow, they said, notice, this is the disciples. This isn't just one man. One man is going to actually carry out the deed. But this is the whole group. They said, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? And let's be honest. Each one of us would say, yes, amen. That's why we resonate with those vigilante movies. That's why you think deep down, if you're an older generation, Charles Bronson's a hero. All right? He's the man. All right? And we see books like Time to Kill. And you have this man whose daughter is brutal, brutalized by these men. And he goes for revenge. And you want him to be declared innocent by the court. Okay? That's what we resonate with. All right? It's the natural, it's the way the natural man thinks. We have a sense of justice. But when that justice is not being tamed by the gospel, this is where we go. We go vigilante. Now, some of the most famous stories in world literature have these themes of uh, betrayal and revenge. Maybe you're familiar with the Count of Monte Cristo. Uh, you have this man named Edmund Dantes who is betrayed by three jealous friends. Typically, betrayal comes because of jealousy, okay? And so he is betrayed by three jealous friends, and he gets put into prison. And then he gets out. He regains his his fortune, and he is going to get his revenge, and we resonate with that. And by the time he's done, you have these three men whose lives are in chaos, suicidal, despair, bankruptcy, everything. That's the story of revenge. And this can happen with believers. It can happen with believers. Notice, as I said in verse 49, shall we strike with the sword? It's not just one. It's the whole group. Yes, one carries out the deed. One of them struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. 
but all of them were complicit. In fact, only John tells us who that disciple was. John 18, verse 10, the disciple was Peter. And the servant who had his ear cut off was Malchus. Now, this is another, I guess you could say, support for the historical veracity of this passage. Why did not Matthew, Mark, and Luke record Peter's name? Okay? Well, they were written earlier. John's gospel was written late, long after Peter could be culpable for what he did. And so most scholars believe the reason the earlier gospel writers didn't mention his name, they're trying to protect him. He could have gotten in a lot of trouble for cutting off the high priest servant's ear. And as a side, the Bible doesn't tell us this, but the early church was strong on this. They say that Malchus was converted. He was converted out of this event. As we're going to see what Jesus does to him, it's hard to uh, think otherwise. And so he, John mentions his name, Malchus, because the early church would have said, Ah, that's the Malchus who had his ear cut off. The Malchus who now is a Christ follower. Now, the real reason, though, the real point of this passage for showing us this is not to indict Peter or the other disciples. The real issue here is this. If you consider all that's taken place that night, we've seen that Peter should have been praying when he was actually sleeping. Remember that? We saw that in the previous passage. Jesus tells the disciples to pray lest they enter into temptation. Peter had been boasting earlier in the night when he should have been fearing. Remember the account earlier that night when the disciples, right after the Lord's Supper, get into a dispute as to which of them was the greatest? You have to believe Peter was like the one who started that whole conversation. Instead of boasting, instead of fearing, he's boasting. Instead of praying, he's sleeping. And now, instead of submitting, he's fighting. That's a very important passage for us. We are tempted to do the same thing. Now, granted, uh, and gratefully, the circumstances that we're going to face are somewhat different than what Peter is experiencing here. But what we see here is what happens when we do not pray. Now listen, prayer is shorthand for a, the, the life of communion with God. That's what it is. Prayer is shorthand for life with communion with God. Okay, so it's Bible study, it's prayer, it's corporate worship. That's what Jesus is referring to here. If we do not live lives of communion with God, you've already fallen into temptation and you're living in that even as we speak. And we see that with Peter. He is a test case for us. But think about it. How do you respond when you are betrayed? Or perhaps just hurt by someone. A friend hurts you. A friend rubs you the wrong way. What do you do? You withdraw from your friend. Okay? Just kind of a passive uh, kind of, you know, indifference to your friend. Passive aggressive. Your spouse hurts you. You withdraw. Your boss, your boss uh, 
irritates you and you, you light up the phone with your other coworkers, um, or this is much more sinister, your child disrupts your peace and quiet, and instead of disciplining in love, you vindicate yourself on your child. That is the spirit of Peter here. Um, and it's, it's a fighting spirit. And so what we have in this passage uh, is two times Jesus is saying, pray lest you enter into temptation. And now you see the disciples doing that very thing. Judas is betraying him. Obviously a man who, whose life was not marked by communion. Judas is betraying him. Peter is fighting spiritual forces in fleshly means. And in fact, he's going to deny Jesus next week. We're going to see that in that passage. We are seeing here the new normal in a fallen world. The new normal in a fallen world when our lives are not characterized by prayer. This is how you operate. This is how we operate in a fallen world when your life is not characterized by communion with God. In other words, Peter's violence here and his soon coming denial would not have happened if he had taken Jesus' command at face value. Pray lest you enter in temptation. The fact is our human nature, unprepared by prayer, will lead us down avenues that will be utterly costly and lead to bankruptcy. It will cause great damage. Luke is calling us here to determine... Uh, whether we're going to go through life faking it like Judas. I think all of us would recognize and agree that Judas faked it for three years. And he faked it really well because when Jesus said one of them was going to betray him, the disciples didn't have a clue that it was Judas. In fact, he was the, the one that held the money. What does that mean? That means they trusted him. For three years, he faked it. Luke is asking us right here in this text, Are you going to go through life faking it like Judas, fighting like Peter, or submitting to the will of God like the Lord Jesus Christ in this text? Will we be characterized by the kiss, that is, the betrayal, Judas, or the sword, fighting like Peter, or the cup? The cup that Jesus would drink, laying down his life in submission to the will of God for the salvation of others. And contextually, the game changer that answers that question is prayer. It comes down to prayer, communion with God. It's not that prayer is going to earn you brownie points. Let's again visit that. There's nothing I can do that can earn me favor with God. That's the anti-gospel. That's every other religion in the world. I can't do... I, I have no more favor with God after I preach a sermon than if I decide not to preach. I have no more favor with God if I get up early on Sunday morning and come and give a triple tithe in the offering plate. Okay? The only favor I have is if I trust in God's provision for my sin and my righteousness. By trusting in the Son, the only one in whom the Father has ever said, This is my Son in whom I'm well pleased. So my prayer life does not earn me brownie points with God. But 
the intensity of my prayer life, the frequency or lack of frequency of my prayer life is a supreme measuring stick. Okay? It is a thermometer, if you will, that helps me gauge whether I am walking in desperate dependency, doxology with the living God, or if I am living self-sufficient. And let me tell you, if you're living self-sufficient, you are either the disciples in this text or Judas. It's utterly impossible to live in submission to the will of God off your knees. It's utterly impossible. And so we've seen here the dark betrayal, the dark revenge. The only light in this passage is Jesus' response. We see in verse 51 the dark Exposed. Look in verse 51. But Jesus said, no more of this. No more of this. There's a time for, for the proper use of the sword. Okay? There really is. Uh, if your home or if this church is invaded by some kind of unlawful aggressor, I hope someone's packing. Alright? There is a proper use of the sword. And our government, Okay, the state has a lawful way to use the sword, Romans 13. But this is unlawful here. How the disciples respond is unlawful. These leaders, as wicked as they are, are the legal authority. Okay, so they are the illegal authority and therefore any armed resistance against them made the disciples guilty of resisting authority, okay? But it was also unwise. It was utterly unwise what they did. Uh, The religious leaders were about... Jesus was about to go through six trials, okay? We're going to see that next week. Jesus would undergo six trials in the next few hours as they looked for a legal basis for charging him. Boy, they had a hard time. They really did. It's, It's hard to charge the perfect son of God with a crime. Okay, but they're going to look and here the disciples are giving them fodder. Ah, you see, this man is leading a violent insurrection against the government. Look what his disciples are doing. But not only that, the biggest problem is they were going against the will of God. They were fighting the will of God here. As we see with Jonah, as we're looking at on Sunday nights. In Acts 2, Peter will later say, just a few weeks later, Jesus was delivered up by the foreknowledge and the definite plan of God. And they are fighting that here. It was the will of God that the Lord Jesus Christ be betrayed. It was the will of God that he would be arrested, that he would be brutalized and tortured, and that he would die on a Roman cross. And all of this helps us to see why Jesus says here um, what he says At the first part of 51. No more of this. But it also helps us see why he did what he does in the second part. And he touched his ear. That is Malchus's ear. The servant of the high priest. He touched his ear and he healed him. Just a trivia point here. This is the last miracle in Jesus' ministry. Yes, the resurrection is a miracle, no doubt. And Jesus, the Son of God, 
His divine nature played a role in his resurrection. But this is his last miracle uh, before the cross. And it kind of goes under the radar if you think about it. It really does. The last full miracle that we read about is in Luke chapter 18, where Jesus healed blind Bartimaeus. All right? But this is the last miracle. But as underplayed as this miracle is, it's hard to overestimate its significance. It is a very important act. Jesus' hands will soon be bound. We're talking just perhaps less than an hour from now. His hands will be bound. And they're going to be bound until they are nailed to a cross. Until they are attached to a cross. And so the last act that his free hands do is to restore the health, the physical well-being of his enemy, the servant of the high priest. And this is a picture of the gospel. That is the gospel. God does not help those who help themselves. He saves sinners who hate him. That's the gospel. And this is a picture of the gospel. And there's some of you here today, perhaps, that may have committed... Listen, if we knew the sins you had committed in your past, we probably wouldn't have let you through the door. And the gospel says there is no sin beyond the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. You've got an enemy coming to him to arrest him, to put him to death, and he's restoring his physical well-being, which points us to what he is coming to do spiritually. He came to seek and to save that which was lost. And this is good news for you. It's good news for me. The fact is, if any of us had on the screen exposed the thoughts we have thought and the deeds we have done, and the words that we have said, we'd be kicked out of the church. And Jesus came to save people like us. There is no sin you've ever committed that cannot be forgiven if you'll humble yourself and say, yes, I'm a sinner, and I deserve judgment. And Jesus took my judgment. Jesus died on the cross for me. He was raised from the grave for my pardon. There's no sin. Won't you come to him today? Why don't you repent of your sins and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ? That's what this act tells us. No one is beyond the love of our Lord Jesus Christ. How can you just heal someone who comes to arrest you? It makes much more sense to me to cut the ear off. And that's anti-gospel thinking. That's why I need my mind and my thoughts and my affections to be tamed and tempered and sanctified by the word of Christ. But practically speaking, Jesus' willingness to suffer injustice lovingly shows us in HD. HD television of how one responds who is not crippled by sin. One who isn't stained by sin. How that person responds when he is mistreated. When one who is perfect 
and loving the Lord his God with his heart, mind, soul, and strength and his neighbor as himself. This is how he responds when he is mistreated, when he is betrayed. And that is the only path that honors God. And by the way, those things that honor God are also the path to human flourishing. If only the the disciples had prayed like Jesus had exhorted them to pray. If only they had prayed like Jesus exemplified prayer, they would have responded differently and not responded by using worthless weapons that would only cause more damage and actually impugn the reputation of God himself. When you're betrayed, and it will happen in a fallen world, okay? When you're betrayed, the natural thing to do is to take revenge. Notice I said natural. That's what the sinner does. That is what the natural man does. Instead, as Paul says in Romans 12, chapter, or chapter 12, verse 17, Repay no one evil for evil, but have regard for good things in the sight of all men. If it is possible, as much depends on you, live peaceably with all men. Beloved, if your enemy hungers, feed him. If he thirsts, give him a drink. For in doing so, you will reap coals of fire on his head. Beloved, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And that comes in the context of a passage where he says, I exhort you, I appeal to you, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. And in that spiritual worship, we prove that God's honor, God's glory, is more important to me than my personal rights. Oh, if a church can understand that. We wouldn't have all the infighting and all the, all the leaving for other churches for superficial, stupid, and carnal reasons. If we could understand that. And then people would begin to see. They would begin to see what Jesus is like from the way we respond to their betrayals and pain. That brings us to the final part of this passage, the dark hour. The dark hour. Notice in verse 52 and 53, Jesus said to the chief priests and officers of the temple and elders who had come out against him, have you come out as against a robber? I mean, how ironic is that? Every act Jesus has ever done was to restore that which was broken by sin. Have you come out like a robber with swords and clubs? When I was with you day after day in the temple, you did not lay hands on me. You couldn't. Why? Because your hour hadn't come. But this is your hour and the power of darkness. This is the hour of the power of darkness. The irony here is they're the ones coming like robbers. They're coming in the darkness of night. They're coming... In secret. Furthermore, they are armed, okay? They come fully armed as if he was some kind of dangerous criminal. Even though everything he had ever done was to restore that which was broken. But here is the encouraging part here. The hour of darkness has term limits to it. Notice, this is your hour. It's not open-ended. Now, he's not referring to 60 minutes. He's he's referring here to a period of time. But this period of time has term limits. Uh, 
Although Satan would appear to triumph in the garden, and Satan would appear to triumph the following day, okay, on the cross, his hour is going to be up. Because in the resurrection, the devil will have his head crushed. Victory will erupt into this broken, dark age through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. In the resurrection, the Father will declare, Your hour is up. I have received the penalty for sin. You no longer have grounds to accuse my my sons and daughters because I've taken away their guilt through the cross and the resurrection. Now, I want you to think about this as well as we close. If God was at work in the darkest hour in history, and this is the darkest hour, this is darker than World War II. What you see with the Germans, much darker than that. It's darker than 9-11. This is the darkest hour in history. If God was at work in the darkest hour in the history of the world and the disciples did not discern what he was up to, not until later, okay? then it stands to reason, whether you see it or not, you can hope, if you're a believer, and he works all things together for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. In your lesser dark moments and times, he's also at work. He's also at work in your dark hour, even as we speak. You don't have to discern what he's doing. Just know that he is redeeming. He is at work whether we see it or not. That is, every hour that we experience that appears to be under the power of darkness is really God's hour. Because He has created us and He has come to redeem that which was broken after creation. And that redemption comes in two stages. The second stage is when Jesus returns and He consummates all things. And He he fixes the broken things. All the sad things will become untrue. Okay, every pain, every loss, every sorrow, every sin will be placed underneath the feet of our Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, when he returns. But in the first stage, what he's coming to do, he's coming to save people like us. Betrayers. Deniers. Fighters, vigilantes. That, that indicts us all, doesn't it? Prayerless people. People who would rather sleep than pray. He's come to redeem people like us. Aslan got it right. All shall be done. But it may be harder than you think. And it was. That's what we see in this narrative. It is harder than anything we could ever think. But it was all done. And that's what we celebrate at the Lord's table. That it was all done. It was all accomplished. So that we who are more like Judas than we could ever realize can commune with the living God. So that we who are more like Peter and the disciples who would rather go vigilante than submit to the will of the Father can commune with the living God. That's what we celebrate at the table. If you're with us today and you're visiting... We would love for you to celebrate with us on a couple of conditions. There was a time in your life that you have repented of your sins. And you committed your life to Jesus Christ. 